Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold, and they're those can't-miss people, and you just know it. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so you can connect the dots and imply it. A cheerful and global citizen in every sense, Sam is not only a great storyteller, but his own story is fascinating. We never did get to the part about him teaching me Singlish, but that's for another time. After leaving the world of private equity, Sam ventured off to start Gypsy Hill Brewery as a way to be more hands-on and to create a better work-life balance. But with four young kids at home, he quickly realized that work runs you until you get on top of it. There are a few laughs in this one, but Sam's approach to business and life is inspiring, and he hits on a number of principles that can be applied to any entrepreneur anywhere, including focusing on value and how a product makes someone feel. The idea that you only need a small audience to make a version of a thing, a brand's ability to unite a team and tell a story, when you are a person like many entrepreneurs wearing many hats, how and when you can start to remove a hat or two. And at the end of the day, it's about fantastic people. Sam's passion, intelligence, and heart are on full display. And in his words, yeast is magic. Beer connoisseur or not, I hope you enjoy this episode on building a brewery, the rapid ascent of Gypsy Hill, and some words of wisdom along the way. Here comes the hilarious and insightful Sam McMeekin. Sam, welcome to the Venturing Game podcast. Thanks, Darcy. Great to, great to be here. Great to see you. Can't wait. So I, I just want to start by painting a picture quickly and setting the stage because you are a great storyteller, so I think we should come out of the gates with a great story. <laughs> <laughs> so you're very British. You grew up early days in England and then spent some of your childhood in Singapore, back to England for boarding school, off to Stanford for undergrad, then to Africa working, I think in various roles, but for the most part, I think private equity um, in Africa. And now you run a brewery. So it's, uh, you know, people think about the straight line to a career don't know that I would call this one a straight line, but uh, obviously you're a very, very cultured guy. So, you know, you've had all these glorious experiences and we can get into you teaching me about Singlish uh, a little later, (laughs) which, you know, in and of itself was mind boggling. I I clearly wasn't cultured because I thought you weren't I thought that wasn't a thing, but it is. So I, I've learned, I learned so, at least something from you. But I want you to talk about sort of one of your, the early days when you launched your brewery, which is now in London, England. And your first week of the job, you told, you've got a great story uh, around throwing a, a summer party. So why don't you lead off with that? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, 
you know, you, I, I'm not sure there are any straight lines in this in this new world um, in terms of career, Dust, and, and thank God for that because it's much more interesting when when things are are, are all over the place. Although, as as our friend Steve says, join the dots, right? There's everything's there for a reason. But on this particular week that you are talking about, I was very much considering how I might join these fucking dots up because they were they had gone in a different direction. But um, yeah, what <laughs> we were, we, I, I was in, I should say, I was in my first full-time week at the brewery because although we'd started like brewing the month before, it was July that we started brewing. It was now early August and I joined up first, first week of August, although we've been planning and I've been running that planning process with my business partner and our head brewer who we hired since, since April, March and before that. But we wanted to have a big launch party because everything deserves a good launch party, doesn't it? And we're just thinking how how we can do it, how we can make this thing special. And you, you know, you hit Google and you hit Reddit and you hit the sort of local local scenes. And we, we found this poor guy who had um, overordered on uh, on turf by about five times. He claimed that he'd been done over by a landscape gardener and he had just a, a mountain of turf if anyone wanted it. So we thought this is perfect. This, we can help this poor guy out and uh, we can get about 200 square meters of turf off him in the process. <laughs> and, that, and we'll have a garden party. We went off in a van and picked up all this turf and it was a veritable mountain and laid it out on the ground in front of our, our warehouse. And I should say, this was not some kind of Eden. This was a concrete jungle at best. But after we'd laid down this turf, it really seemed quite nice. And to keep it alive, I watered it. And it was, it was as I said, it was August, it was hot. And I just started full-time at a brewery. And to be honest with you, it was very much still trying to figure out what the what I was, what I was doing. I mean, you know, I, I'd quit my job and I believed in what we were going to do like long-term, but the day to day, I was still in a daze because I, you know, was just still getting used to not wearing a suit. And so I stood there for probably a good hour a day, I reckon, just making sure this 200 square meter patch of grass was, was well watered. And about the 10 days after we laid it and it was flourishing, it really was. We threw our, our launch party, our garden party, we built a white picket fence all the way around this lawn, made out of pallets, painted it white. And um, the whole community came down and it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And in fact, because, you know, it's, it's, I always have a lovely reminder every year because Google Photos gives you the six years ago, five years ago. And it's just great revisiting it because there everyone was sitting, having a, having a picnic on the grass outside the brewery and it was it was a crazy time but it was it was a wonderful launch to to what has been a a, a constant roller coaster ever since it sounds like a the perfect launch party just as the party winds up standing there with the hose on the front lawn slash parking lot and uh here we go so so on that note perfect transition give us a rundown of your business and maybe you know where you are today we can go into a little more detail, you know, in, in time here. And then, like, what were the first steps like starting a brewery? Yeah, I mean, um, it was so, I I mean, I had a long, I don't know how deep you want to go into the journey of, of deciding to <clears throat> to do a brewery. But I guess that the short version is, is that I decided my only option was to go out on my own and get some experience running my own thing which means running my own 
brand, my own P&L, my own set of ethics, my own, you know, product manufacturing, you know, the whole brewing is so exciting because there's so many different parts to it. You know, it's, it's intensely CapEx. So you need to have like financial strategy. It's intensely brand orientated. So you need to have a marketing strategy. It's a manufacturing like wonderland. So, you know, I mean, yeast is magic. It's literally scientists are still baffled by how it behaves. So, you know, the manufacturing side of beer is just is fascinating. And then there's logistics, the sales, you know, there's there's HR because obviously you need to manage people. So there's so much fun stuff baked into brewing and I just zeroed in on it and I did what any good private equity person does. I, I built a five year model based on on no experience brewing whatsoever. And I was like, great, well, I'm going to be a millionaire, you know. <laughs> Look at this model. Of course. This, this, the model, model will tell you that every time. Yeah, the model just goes up and up, you know. And uh, and so dove in and we and we started. It was the early days of craft beer. You know, we, we thought we were a little bit late, but the truth is we were actually just at the end of the first wave. Um, the second wave dwarfed the first wave. And so, like, there are a lot of sort of macro trends in our in our sales which is which is so important in terms of helping you establish yourself and, and helping get sales off the ground and get established amongst the industry and that kind of thing so so our timing was was really good to the to the market but yeah it um within within weeks within weeks my forecast five-year model was was an absolute joke and it was um, the reality of, of building a small business with a team of three. So it was my co-founder, me, and our, and our founder employee who was acting head brewer. It was such an exciting and exhilarating but difficult time. You know, you can say I, I was working quite late in the job that I had. And I, I it, part of me thought this would be a better work-life balance, for example. I'd had my first kid. I'd be more in charge because I'm, I'm the boss, right? Well... You're not in charge when you're running your own business, really. Until you are on top of it, your business runs you. And that is a zone you should get out of as fast as you can. But for a while, it's probably unavoidable. So, you know, my, my five-day previous career would turn into six. <laughs> but it was, it, was a, it was a great, great adventure. I mean, you know, which specific bits of it should we, should we dive into? Well, so I think, you know, it'd be interesting to, to know sort of the timeline. So when you started... And then where you are today in terms of like, what are the major metrics that you'd be tracking? You know, is it volume? Is it exporting? You know, like, so maybe start there. That's kind of a, a good roadmap. Yeah. So, um, I mean, 2014, we did 300,000 grand's worth of sales in the last six months of that year. 2020, we were supposed to have done 5 million in turnover. So it's fairly rapid growth, I, I guess. But we, because of uh, global pandemics, are going to not hit that by, by some way this year. We're down about 40% from that number, which is, um, which is a, big old, it's a big old hit. But, you know, a lot of people have been enormously impacted by, by COVID, obviously. It's, it's easy to look at brewing in terms, of, in terms of revenue slash volume. Indeed, that's how most people would, because at the end of the day, you know, we make, sell and distribute beer. When I boil it down, that is essentially what it is. And so, you know, how much have you made? 
one of the key metrics that you look at is, you know, what is your pound per liter? So what, what price have you got for all the, all the beer that you've made? Those are really important because if you have like a target level of, of pound per liter that you're after, and by pound, I mean, obviously sterling, then it, it informs how you are making beer in terms of how expensive it is and, and where you're selling it. The more that it's in cans, the higher price you get. The more that it's higher strength, the higher price that you get. The more it costs, obviously. Those are some different KPIs. But um, you know, the, to have a good, healthy pound per liter is, I guess, some of the some of the key metrics that we look at. But in terms of from a volume play, you know, we've gone basically zero to to about sort of a, we'll do just under four million probably this year in about in in six years um, of of growth. And the brewery's called Gypsy Hill. Gypsy Hill, just it, it, you know, where is Gypsy Hill or what is Gypsy Hill? And it's a, yeah, it's a small neighborhood. Uh, London has asked me that as much as anyone who's not from London. Uh, small neighborhood just down the way from Crystal Palace. Everyone knows Crystal Palace because it's in the Premier League. Just as you're talking about, you know, pound per volume effectively, like how do you toggle as, because, you know, there's an art and obviously a science to what you do. And I'm sure the art side is like you guys pride yourself on quality and sort of innovation. Like you want to make unique, great tasting beers, but then there's also, or brews, I don't know, I don't know the right terminology, but I sound very North American beers, you know, quality innovation and you want to make like very unique and flavorful stuff. But then there's also, you know, like one of the, goals I'm sure is mass market distribution and not everyone is going to have that sort of refined taste maybe. So how do you, how do you toggle between those two things? At the end of the day, what I boil a good offering down to more than anything else is, is value, right? Because value is ultimately what a consumer wants. They want to have, you know, and value to be clear, like it can be something that's a real dog shit product, but then it's super, super cheap. And so you're happy. <laughs> or it can be something that is absolute luxury. But for all of that luxury, it's got a price tag that you're actually really happy with. Both of those things are, are great value. And, um, you know, beer is, is ultimately no different. Like, how does this product make you feel? And does its taste and how it makes you feel match up to the price that's being asked for it? Those things are are all just equal value. So the most important thing, I think, as a, as a like, food and bev, company is to make sure that you're offering someone good value for, for what it is. But like within that, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like we make well, our, our range of, of products, I guess, and the amount that they cost us is they're, they're some of our highest value products or highest cost products, I just say, are three times as much as our lowest cost. So that means that the price that we charge for them is anything from circa five times as much all the way down to... Um, versus our cheapest product. So, uh, I mean, a, a roundabout way, I guess, to answer your question is that when you're, when you're smaller and you don't have that much to sell to, you only need a really small audience and then you can just make one version of a thing. But as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, the key to be able to uh, maintain a nice high value offering is, I guess, to offer different kinds of products into different markets. Like right now we're sold in supermarkets and we're sold in the most high-end bottle shops that there are in the UK. We enter into like Norwegian monopoly tenders 
which do have good, really high quality standards, but we're also pouring our beers in, you know, in beer festivals all around the world. So like there's, you know, you can do both things and still be consistent, I think, with, um, with offering a, a value which has the same like brand vibe. So that's kind of that's kind of what we do, I guess, and that's yes. You know. So it's kind of like barbell approach in a way, like in, in a way, you know, you're kind of mass market, but then also catering to sort of the high end. O- on that note, your branding is phenomenal. I love it. Like, how did your branding come to be? You know, if people check out your website, I think it's gypsyhillbrew.com. You know, you've got these caricatures on every different type of beer. So how do, how did that come to be? And it is definitely unique. That was a funny one. And that was another one right at the beginning where, so all of the branding stuff happened before, while I was part-time still and still working mainly in the in the city. And, uh, you know, it was so fun for me to cut out on my lunch break, you know, and go visit a designer with my business partner. And we'd, we'd, we'd chew the fat for a sort of an hour and a half about pushing his designs around the place. And when you try this thing over there, and like we had a Pinterest mood board and things, it was the first time I'd done a Pinterest mood board and, you know, like I can't, I can't remember if I was just excruciatingly micromanaging with the whole thing, or if I was like just so naive that the things you're saying are just so, so silly. That this designer in his head is, is like, God, I'll just do whatever these guys want so they leave quicker. But um, you know, like honestly, so I interviewed five different designers. And we went with one, and this is the process we were doing, and we got all the way to a final label. And I, I mean, I, I look back on the label sometimes now because not only was it, from a design perspective, an absolute horror show, which is not the designer's fault, I want to say. Like, he, he let it happen, but it was because I got so involved in the design. And I, I'm a terrible designer. No, no bone in my body is, is good at actual design, like product design. And, and, are you, and, are you and a better that. designer or dresser? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you know the answer to that. <laughs> um, I don't, but hopefully a better designer. <laughs> and uh, it was literally, and not only was it a, a horrible design, but actually it was an impossible label. So I, I now know if we'd phoned up the label companies and said, here's, here's our thing, can you turn this? They would have said, this is an impossible label. We can't even do this. It's, it's, this is too difficult to even apply onto a bottle. Like, you need to go away and start again. So um, that was... You know, but we never got to that stage because my business partner pulled me back and he's just like, Sam, I, I think, I'm afraid I think these are shit. And at the time, I still thought they were great because we've been working our nuts off for three or four months on these labels. And you know, you just, you're in the weeds with the whole thing. You've been micromanaging the whole thing and you've got to a final place. You've got no more comments on it. And that's your draft. Cool. This is it. Let's go for it. This is going to be fantastic. Wait, hang on. Handbrake. No, actually pulling yourself out of the weeds. This is crap shit you're right this is actually crap so what should we do well we in the back of my business partner's mind it was actually his his wife there was a guy who had his artwork hung on the local pub wall place where we would be hashing out plans about various things like probably too often and so we phoned him up he was a guy marcus reed and uh, he met us a couple of days after we phoned him for a juice and um and we talked and he was like this is the kind of stuff i do send me some photographs of you guys you know it's it's largely character based so we did he mocked up a couple of logos super simple sent us a 10 page doc that had you know an, an overview of the whole thing with charlie characterized simon characterized and me characterized holding a sign and we were like this is 
this is perfect. This is just simple. It's it's clean. It represents us properly. You know, it builds it builds an image of the brand that's consistent with how we want to build it, which is basically, you know, two dads, frankly, trying to uh, you know trying to have a good go at craft beer in the market. And we went from there. And ever since then, every beer we've ever done has got a, a character on it. And all of the characters are either people who work at the brewery or they're people that we've collaborated with on a beer. So, for example, right now, this makes me bloody jealous. Right now, we're working on a collaboration with a brewery down in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And uh, they've got a pool in their brewery. And um, the owner, Carl, has sent a photo of himself sitting in a deck chair by the pool to go on our label. And um, that's great. That's that's what we'll do. And I was like, one day, Carl, I will be in a deck chair by our brewery. Pub well, you, you could always send him the picture of you watering your lawn at your brewery. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the next one. Uh, so I, I see on your uh, on your logos, you're the bandit. And you know what I like about it as I kind of look through them is your team's grown quite a bit. And it almost gives me the feeling that like the team is united because they all have their own, whether they're, you know, business development or the founder or, you know, the chief brewer, whatever the label is, like everyone's got their thing and they're equally represented almost in a way. It's pretty neat. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a really lovely thing. You join us and I mean, we've been through phases when we were, I think it was 2018 or, 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 and 2019 was really when we were doing like 60, 60 new beers a year. So basically, I mean, more than one a week. And we ran out of staff by, by miles. We had people who had like literally joined us and that week they were on a label. And they were like, wow, I didn't expect this to happen so quickly. But we're just like, we're desperate. We actually kind of hired you. Just We needed someone on the label. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not true. But um but it was it was as close as that. And indeed, we had one guy who unfortunately had to move out of London, and he'd only been with us a couple of weeks. He was he was working in our bar as a as a bartender in, in the tap room, and his label came out after he left. But um, it's a really it's a really nice thing. It does bring the team together. It is fun always to see the different artists' impressions of of people, and uh, yeah, it's it is it's a lovely thing, and it is a, a thing that is that is different from most things in the industry. Yeah, it's great. So on staying sort of on the, uh, you know, brewing in, in the beer, the actual beer itself, what's the fascination with IPAs? It seems like that's the thing. And I guess I asked that from a selfish standpoint. I'm more of a lager guy. Are you? I think I'm more of a gruff oh. type guy, which may be plain <laughs> vanilla. But like, what is the fascination with IPA? And, I, and it didn't strike me as you necessarily as a, as a beer guy, but it's it's like an endless journey that people seem to to go on this uh, craft brewery journey. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I guess every everything's got its protagonist, right? And IPA is craft beer's protagonist. Um, and why is it that? Well, it's probably 
the most adventurous yet approachable version of craft beer, I guess. I say I say most adventurous because you know lager is and will always be like the most approachable beer, even if it's the most nuanced as well. Um, and we'll get onto that because actually, your you know you being a lager boy means that you've got a no doubt a highly refined palate because the nuance of lager is is almost endless. But like IPAs are super simple to wrap your head around. It's a bigger, bolder, brasher version of a of a pale ale. It's steeped in history. You know, famous is the journey of beer going from the UK to India and in order to survive it, got pumped up with alcohol and with hops before we were shipping beers and, and in the barrels they were turning bad, they were turning to vinegar, they were arriving and on Indian shores and the and the, the poor guys and girls over there had had nothing to, to drink because it had turned during the journey. The hops act as a preservative, alcohol acts as a preservative. So if you pump up the hops and you pump up the alcohol, then the beer survives the journey. So goes the myth anyway. And so the IPA is born really out of that. But, you know, that was a long, long time before it was really popularized by, you know, America and the craft beer revolution that happened there, starting in the late 80s and even earlier, when, um, you know, really with Sierra Nevada putting more cascade into their pale ale, uh, making it bitter, making it resinous, making it floral, making it piney and pumping up the ABV a little bit. And it was just, it hit a, it hits an absolute thread. It's a sweet spot. And uh, I completely understand why it is the most popular style out of all, all of craft beer, out of all beer in general. I shouldn't say that. Lager is by far away the most popular style in general, but out of craft beer, IPA is. That's American thing, I feel like, for the most part, though, right? Like the, the Budweiser's and, and this type of thing. No, I mean, 90% of all the beer drunk in the UK is lager. Oh, is it? Wow, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. I was just used to, you know, those flat, pumping flat, no fizz. No fizz, natty light. Oh, you mean the car scales. Car scales are like uh, 5% of the market over here, maybe a, maybe a percent or two more. Interesting. And craft beer is like four or five, maybe maybe six by now. Uh, the car scale and craft beer combined over here is about 12% of the market. So lager's down to probably about 88%. That's true. Speaking of the Premier League, it's the Heineken, uh, the Heineken of you know Heineken's all over the Premier League. So interesting, you, you, you mentioned collaboration. I saw that you collaborate with, uh, I think it's a German lager. So that was for Gruff, right? The thing that you so said. So how do you, you collaborate? You... Like how does that? Yeah, that was for Gruff. How do you? How do the collaborations work? Like is it? Well, so that that one actually in particular has got a lot of backstory and it's very funny. So I've, it was at the first beer festival I ever went to. We'd probably been brewing about nine months. I was I, I, I must have looked absolutely strung out because you know nine months into your venture, you're just all of the glory and the initial sheen has just worn off, and you're. You're just on there, <laughs> you know, you're on this, this constant anyway. So I, I must've looked like a bit of a wreck and, uh, and I was pushing this 3.8% pale ale, which was, which was fine. Like it was fine, but it was, you know, it, we've, we've gotten a lot better since, since those days. And there was this guy, this, this, I can only refer to him really as a showman. You know, he was just a huge character, you know, loud making jokes had a you know like small crowd around him wherever he went it seemed like called stefan this german guy and so i i, I pinned him uh at one point during the festival i was just like hey stefan how's it going like nice to meet you my name's sam you know here's my here's here's my beer what do you think he drank it and he was like it's okay it's okay well when did you start brewing and i'm i'm not going to give you my my german accent I'm like oh it's been like nine months now and 
yeah, it's going fine. You know, we've obviously, we're working on a lot of things. We're working hard to get better. And what about you? How long have you guys been brewing? I was like, oh, 250 years. I'm like, and he blew my world apart. I was just like, what are you talking about? 250 years. I'm fifth generation. <laughs> fifth generation German brewer from Bamberg. I was like, oh, wow. That is just, so like the levels that we're talking about here are just ridiculous in their in their difference you know but anyway i've known Stefan ever since then and we've been we're, we're, we're great friends and so when we launched our 100 day lager series which is this special series where we we make a complex lager and we cellar it for 100 days which means we leave it in the tanks for 100 days before packaging the, the word lager actually means to store at a cold temperature so uh the process of lagering is what you do to a lager and it's why it's called a lager so a collaboration that we did with stefan was to we took we took a pitch of their yeast from germany so he came over and he brought a keg of his yeast and we got some some rare german malts as well and we used all of those in the brew and we followed a rigid like german fermentation schedule that he he gave us as part of the collaboration and then we sell the beer for, for 100 days after all of that and packaged it up in February, I think. And yeah, that was that was gruff. And that's, you know, so collaboration is about not just sort of two brands getting together and trying to market something. It's actually about sharing knowledge, so learning from from each other, also spending time with each other. So Stefan, you know, he comes, he comes by for the entire day. And we would normally, for any collab, like go out at night, have a meal, stay out late. Like it's a, it's a really, it's a lot of quality time together. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, at the end of it, you've got this, this great friendship, this great product, and you're, and you are helping each other out in a, in a business way, I guess, by, by building not just the story of each other's brands, but also the story of, of craft beer and that collaborative nature that we have. Yeah, it's great. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it is, it's a, it's a really good thing. Great things happen when, when you collaborate, like I won't say what we're doing with this Australian brewery, but we are going to do something that we have never done before. And it's, uh, I'm really excited about it. It sounds, well, it sounds delicious. So on that note, I'd be curious as to how you think about importing, or I guess for us, it would be importing in Canada or the US, exporting. So like how, how do you go about exporting and when are you going to be on, uh, on North American soil? Man, I mean, it'd be great to be in North American. So the the, Ameri- the North American, as in the United States' market, sort of scares me, if you will, because it's just like super competitive there. And it's it's such an advanced market. Like 25% of all beer in the States is is craft beer. Things are a little bit more nascent in, in Canada. And uh, I also think they are more open open-minded because of the uh, the monopoly system that you guys have got. I don't know if that's over the whole country or is it just a couple of states? I'm pretty sure it's over the whole country. In Ontario, where we're based, it's it's controlled by the liquor control board here. You're saying they're more open-minded because because of that? Well, uh, yeah, I would say so because they there's an easier route to market because it's more carefully controlled. Right. So, like, literally, there's someone you can go to and they're like, oh, yeah, we actually would be open to another European or British beer to come in. Like we've got some space on our Monopoly shelves. We have a six monthly blind tasting Mm -hmm. competition. Why don't you, this is how it works in Norway, at least, for example, why don't you enter some of your beers into this taste competition? We're looking for a IPA and we're looking for a 
whatever a, a session stout and if you if you win or get in one of the top places then we'll list you and you've got a year long or a 24 month long listing and you just start exporting so that's why it's nice if there's a if there's a route in because if you're you know if you're good you can win these competitions and we've won them in in Sweden and in Norway, whereas in America it's much more just a free market for for craft beer. You need to partner up with a with an importer, and uh, you know that the local competition is is not controlled really in any way. It's a really advanced market, and uh, you know at the end of the day we're actually making North American style beers these days like british beer as you said it's 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 car scale um it's best bitters it's session stouts those kinds of things mm-hmm. um <clears throat> when we make highly hopped ipas you know that's th- those are the styles of beer that we have really learned to make from the american breweries who've led the way so i'm always kind of thinking well why would you know why would america be so interested in bringing over beers that are a version of what of what everyone makes so well over there already Kind of the trick is, I know, for example, a brewery in Scotland that makes 90% car scales, they export loads of car scales into New York. Like you can find a significant amount of, you know, fine ales um, on tap at the at the craft beer bars that are serving cask in New York because none of the local breweries are making cask ales. So that's like, like that works. You know what I mean? Because you're different and you're niche and you're interesting. For sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a bit of a sales factor there too, right? Like it's a for all those reasons you just said. So it sounds to me like there's there's still opportunity in in the UK because you know if the US is an example where 25% of their of their volume is, you know, microbreweries or or like in the U and the UK's at 6 craft beer that there's still opportunity in the UK but exporting I think you told me is 20 to 22% of of the volume you do Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's around that. Yeah, and so how do you see Canada and the U.S. like ultimately playing into that, or is it too tough to t- too tough to say? No, I I, I definitely think that Canada uh, is a place we can go. Like, there's there's some brands who have some UK ones who've got a decent presence, I think, in Canada, right? Like Innocent Gun, who are a, a, a big brewery over here in the mm-hmm. in the craft world, I guess. They export a lot there, and and others do too. We were going to be in Canada for a beer festival in April this year before it got kiboshed. So uh, I'm I'm sure that that Canada will happen. Um, in terms of America, America will be more about specific distro deals that we might strike with an importer who's looking for like a, a big volume, like multi shipping container type play because he's got a listing somewhere and that kind of thing. That's probably how America I think would would shake out if it if it works at all. Mm-hmm. But in general, export is is really great because it just it diversifies your all your routes to market, you know. And the margins the margins on it are good. For sure, you know, we get better margins on our export sales than we get on our on our domestic ones. So uh, that you know that's part of the reason why it's it's so exciting to pursue export. But the other side of it is you know I mean COVID has been a, a perfect example of why export is is so good we, we have a global exposure if we were completely exposed to london then you know the lockdown that we're going to have probably next week or the week after for, for a couple of weeks you know would would absolutely shut us down but while london's locked down you know we can ship out to australia japan china south korea and, and, and places like this which are are not going through another another lockdown so you know the diversity is that that diversification is is more important now than, than than we ever thought it would be. 
Yeah, for sure. And then you couldn't have you couldn't have uh, forecasted, uh, you know, the pandemic. That's for sure. I thought during the pandemic, though, you know, some of the some of the statistics you hear is that alcohol consumption is up, and sort of now you've got direct to consumer delivery options. Is that the case in the UK or no? So we've always had direct to consumer delivery and we've always done it in a really small way. And actually, I mean, the pandemic has been amazing to accelerate B2C. And like our story of D2C is an, is kind of an amazing one, I think. Even when I re- relive the numbers, it does blow my mind. We were doing about £2,000 a month in just organic um, B2C. And I set us an aggressive target this year of 50,000. I was like, come on, we need to, let's double this thing. We need to, let's push it. Let's put some more firepower behind the marketing. Like, you know, let's, let's go. Let's, you know, let's, let, let's see some, see some results. You know, that kind of nice corporate bluff. And uh, we were all set to, to smash 2,000 pounds by, by mid-March. I think we were tracking like, you know, 12 or, or 1,300 pounds by mid-March. So it was like, we might, you know, might make it to 25 or, or, or something. And then the last week of March, we did 55 grand. So we beat, we beat our annual target in, in one week, the first week of the lockdown. And then in April, we did 100 grand. And it's been tailing off ever since then. But the degree to which that pandemic just absolutely exploded B2C is, it cannot be, it can't be understated. However, like, you know, you say people are drinking more than ever in lockdown. I mean, I would contest that because you never drink more than you do when you're at the pub. And, you know, at home, a can or two, sure. But a can or two at home versus, you know, three or four pints with your mates is 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 not the same. And so, like, volumes are down significantly. But, you know, B2C is up. And B2C, when it was 100, I mean, the April helped a lot because April, we literally sold nothing to any pubs whatsoever and in place of all of that we had all that b2c business and it was like it helped a lot but it was not like for like and right that's why I, i'm actually more concerned about what's going to happen in the next six months winter's setting in you know second waves are just a building all over the place we've got wales on lockdown right now we've got scotland part of scotland on lockdown job losses are through the roof and like the second wave is here so you know, people are not buying in the same way they did in April, and yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a difficult, a difficult six months. How do you toggle up and down like the the volume and production? And man, I mean, look, you can you can toggle the the volume um, with some ease. You know, you can. It takes twenty five days more or less to make a beer. Not all beers have a hundred days like your lager. Um, most mm-hmm. of them are so twenty to twenty five days. But you know, in twenty five days, even will be will produce hundreds of thousands of liters of beer not hundreds maybe a hundred you know and so if we got that in tank and then we just hit the brakes hard we've still got you know around 250 300 grand's worth of stock tied up in tank which is obviously a lot for a small business to to absorb right but we can just stop what we can't stop is is rent and we can't stop salaries because as quick as you might want to put the brakes on production your sales you might want to start up again and, you know, like we went through a small round of redundancies at the beginning of the pandemic. None of them were production staff and none of them were logistics staff because logistics went wholesale over to e-com packaging and, the, and production. We had two weeks of no brewing and then we were back to full capacity again because we ran out of all of our can stock. So, yeah, you know, you can toggle down what you're making, but you can't toggle down a lot of the fixed costs any anymore. We've stripped a lot of that out already. Yeah, for sure. 
So if we uh, switch maybe away from the pandemic a little bit and just think about, you've got an interesting background, you know, coming from the private equity world. So how do you, how do you look at this business through the lens of a, you know, private equity investor and like, where do you see it going? I have at times running this business really struggled with all the different hats as the CEO of this thing. Cause part of the reason I was so attracted to running a brewery is because I was so sick of the way business was done. And I was, I have always been enamored with the manufacturing process, whether we're just talking about cooking a meal or, you know, or, or making a table, or, I mean, I'm no carpenter and I'm certainly no chef, but I, I love cooking and I, and I, and I love getting my hands dirty. And, you know, I never really expected to be like fully involved in production, but literally within two months of starting the brewery, I was, I was pushing us all from a, um, from a production perspective to try and get better as quick as we can. And after about 12 months, I think I had my, my brewer's qualification might've been 18. And it was just such a fascinating part of what I saw as, as my role. And indeed, I, I'm not sure how anyone can run a brewery without being able to hold the production team accountable for what they're doing, i.e. not understanding how big it's made. Because, you know, if you care about quality and you care about running a, a tight, like efficient, cost cost effective, you know, production facility, then um, you need to know how it all works. You know, I mean, it's, it's obvious to say it, you know, but the, the number of bosses of breweries who, who are not qualified brewers is, um, is, is high. So anyway, that, I think that is key. But the difficulty in having a great insight to production, as well as trying to run the marketing, sales and, and, and financial side of the whole mm-hmm. thing, is that you're just, you're constantly torn. Because I'm like, man, if we could just buy this gorgeous piece of engineering mechanization, like we would be, we could do all of this stuff with our production. Our beers would be better, and uh, you know. And on the flip side, you're like, cool, okay, the beers are better. So then, are we offering better value, or like, how is it affecting our our cogs per liter? And you know, then are we matching that with a marketing push? Are we adjusting some of our brand values, or what is it? So you know, not getting too bogged down into any one of the departments is something that I have that I have struggled with. And it's it's because if you're deeply passionate about the thing, then um, you know, then, then you can, you can get too focused on, on, on one part. So how do you, how do you remove yourself? Like how have you removed yourself from the day to day? And now that you've got a, you know, pretty significant staff, how do you professionalize it? And, and how do you know what to do? You know, like as you guys grow and evolve, you know, like do you have a board and how do you hold yourself accountable? Yeah. Well, so, and, and the answer is hiring fantastic people. I cannot run production. I'm not technically qualified enough to. I never was, although I understand it very well. But I, I should not be running it. And so hiring excellent people in to run it who you can have a great working dialogue with is the way. And then on the production side, I guess, I I, I stay involved enough to, maybe it's just to keep me happy, not even to be influential enough over the, the product. But um, I, you know, you, you're involved at enough touch points, but not too many. That's my that's my current goal anyway. Like I, I you know, we I taste the beers all of them most weeks. I sit down every week with our production manager. We go over everything from our capex plans to our you know recipe developments and an MPD and that kind of thing. But I stay well away from the brewery as much as possible because he needs a space and needs to be needs to feel responsibility for what he's doing. 
the same is true and on the on the sales front the same is true on the marketing front you know and and yes to hold to hold myself accountable for overall performance i needed to put guardrails around me and the way i did that was by putting in a board we had not had a board the whole time that i that we were running gypsy hill and uh, it was it was February. I confirmed our chairman. I was hoping to have our first board meet in April. We eventually got our first board meet done on the first of October, so this month. And that nice. was and that was super exciting. Congrats! Yeah, it was it was awesome. We've we've recruited some fantastic board members. One of them got amazing industry experience. Another one's just got huge board and business experience, and another one is audit chair. You know, she's fantastic. And so it's it's really a case of just. Now I I know that I've got to balance the performance of the whole company and push each of the departments on what they need to do separately in order to achieve what the board is expecting me to achieve. And yeah, that structured accountability is is absolutely key and it it, it forces you to switch your hats up uh, as appropriate, which is which is good. Without it, you'd probably be lost in in the weeds maybe forever. Can you grow in this business like now that you've got these, you know, strong sort of guardrails around you can you grow in this business just organically or is there a point where you look at you know kind of a roll-up strategy or you know you're looking at the the big boys up top and and you know setting yourself up for an uh, ultimate acquisition so i i mean one of the big plays that i think is is out there is that there's a huge opportunity for a for a medium-sized quality producer of of craft beer in the UK, in the States, there are 15, you know, 15 or more regional, national, regional uh, breweries who are, who dwarf, you know, any of any breweries in, in, in the UK who are producing great, great quality beer. We, we literally don't have, don't have any of those. Our largest craft brewery is Brewdog and it, Brewdog in turn dwarfs all of us by, by absolutely miles. I think there's a huge, a huge opportunity for like a medium-sized craft brewery to be pumping out like the best quality beers that the industry still has got. So that's like that's sort of the the, the goal, if you will, to to get there. Can we grow organically? Absolutely. But um, is a sort of M and A strategy um, part of what I think about more and more? Yes, it is. It is. How you do that, you've got to be super careful because, uh, you know, we our independence is very dear to us. I think it's a key part of being able to sell beer in this craft beer, at least in this country, is um, is having a, a, a strong like employee belief in what you're doing, a strong independent mindset in what you're doing, and ultimately not being accountable to anyone else. It helps build your your brand, and and a lot of people, for good and for bad, to be honest, in the UK, think that you know independence is is of provides a lot of value and i i agree all the innovation that really happens in beer is done by independent breweries big breweries really just sort of take that and then mass market it and then strip out the costs as they can to um to price others out of the business so you know that's how that dynamic works a bit so i think really the challenge is to grow inorganically maintain independence and actually just build a regional international brewery that is based in the uk and exporting into europe slash globally that's what i what i think can happen and i think programmatic MA is a is a should be a a big part of that uh, not a big part a, a small part of that an important part of it 
it sounds like you have a pretty clear vision. You know, it, maybe it's hopefully it's a little different than the initial model you put together, but um, you know, it feels like you got a great pulse on everything surrounding the business from operations through to sort of management and and a vision. So I'm sure that that will uh, that vision will will run its course and uh, and come true. So one of the interesting things, which I I don't know why I was so interested. There's a couple things about you is that you come off like, uh, you know, obviously a, a character in and of yourself, you know, funny, fun guy, super sharp, but also hyper, you, you're very competitive. And uh, I don't know why, but you're, I was a little surprised that you're a sneaky good athlete. On the surface, I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. And then you come out on the rugby pitch and you're, you know, dominant, great golfer. So as part of your, um, you know, maybe up the curve on learning, you know, what's, what's on the, on the bookshelf today that you're reading and, and maybe walk me through sort of how reading, it's almost targeted reading what you're doing too has helped you or, or at least reading with, you know, you're always making that connection to the brewery and your business. So maybe you talk a little bit about what you're reading and, and sort of how you go about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I reading reading is it's it, it's amazing, and and you're right that it is every every different book can tie back to learnings, but um, gosh, in such different ways. I mean, one like you, you actually you can't buy it anywhere, but it was one book that was written by my great grandfather, who was an explorer. Believe it or not, like literally, a, like a what? Yeah, man, a world a world explorer back in the. In the 1920s, talk about and, connecting the dots. And before that, that, but now it all makes sense. I mean, his his life. He was an explorer. His life was 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 unreal, unreal. He's he's uh, he was on the the first journey up Everest with Mallory and Irvin, and uh, and in general was 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 stationed out in the Himalayas for years, helping uh, integrate locals into who had had their borders essentially, you know, um, pulled apart. And so he was like negotiating between between Himalayan tribes essentially to keep the peace. I mean, his life was just incredible. More than anything, what that does is it it, it imbues this sense of not like to say anything impossible anything is possible is not doing it not doing it justice. It's it's more just like the amazing things that can can happen if you you know if you if you think big. I mean, I, one of the particular stories that just really sits with me is he was just exploring the Rockies with a friend of his. They're pitching camp around the place, and he tells a story. One morning, they just they they woke up and they were like, "Let's go, let's go climb that one." And you know, we're talking 1920s in the middle of the in the middle of the beyond, right? I mean, I I could grab it and try and find the mountain. Maybe you know it, because it's obviously your neck of the woods. But uh, but the point is, they took off. It was before light with a sandwich or two in the backpack and they went off and they got to the peak of this thing. And at times they were climbing like sheer granite faces with absolutely nothing, no support, no, uh, just each other, you know, and a, and, and a rope or something. Um, no one around, probably no one around that you could see, even when you were standing at the top of the mountain for as far as you can possibly see, obviously radios are out of the question. We're talking just decades, decades ago, a century ago. You know, and it's just, and they and they got back, you know, after nightfall, and sat around at the fire, and and were like, whew, that was a that was a day, you know, <laughs> and it's just like 
God damn that you know that sense of adventure is just is so wild and if you think about that as being one of the extremes with which you can approach life you know and you try and build that into your corporate mindset my god it, it blows it blows all the possibilities wide open you know on the one hand you've got books like that which sort of alter your perception of of what's possible and then on the other side i mean i've you know i've read a fascinating book that's 200 pages about nothing but pricing um and the the good thing about a book like that is at the time i was doing a deep dive into pricing strategy and so it was highly you know i mean it's basically a textbook for me and it was and it was fascinating do you retain like how do you retain it i got you know not that you read it and go do you, do you note it up or just kind of like because you're so deeply ingrained it just helps you connect the dots to be honest with you i think i want to believe that last bit that you just said and to a certain degree it does but i wish i noted more and i wish that i i worked harder to uh, to really bed it in i do believe that in the back of your mind this stuff sticks and it helps you connect the dots I also think that that's a touch lazy and the better thing to do. And what I often do do with my books, I carry them around in my backpack and um, for the next couple of weeks after I finish one and I'll just I'll pull it out at random times because there's a page or, or there are a couple of points that I'm and I note it down into my journal or something. And like I do do that. So I'm sort of a halfway house between fully notating like the whole thing and, and, and transcribing like the highlights to uh, to just putting it you know on the shelf the, the, the second you finish it. It is important to go over it, to keep thinking about it and to revisit, I think, in order to properly unpack a lot of the lessons in these things. But yeah, you know, there's, I mean, the 10 years since we finished our MBA task, it's, you know, I've learned, I mean, it'd be unfair to say, to say more, but like books offer an awful lot. They really do offer, offer an awful lot on how to think, on how to, how to think big, on how to, on how to manage, on how to balance like risk weighting on, on, on all sorts of things. It's uh it's fascinating. I, and I think, you know, part of it is just like intentionally finding the time, carving out that time to do it right. And making it, making it a habit, which is like we said, you know, you're juggling a lot of things at work and away from work, family and, you know, everything else. So it's impressive that you do it and it's kudos to you. So listen, Gypsy Hill's a, a great story. You're a, you're an incredible leader and, and person, you know, I can attest to that directly and obviously a great storyteller because when you tell stories, you, you kind of get lost in thought. So I'm uh, thankful that, that you were able to join and, and um, share some of your thoughts and your story. Wish you nothing but the best. Look forward to Gruff landing on the shores of Ontario and giving it a go one of these days amongst others. But my final question that I close with is um, a little bit of a an odd one. And it goes like this. What song, if you were to pick one song to sing karaoke to, what would it be? <laughs> I mean, I have, historically I had a karaoke song. But um, the truth is there, is, there is really only one song that actually owns my heart. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and if you if you and Can't like wait. the one that really that you can tell it comes from the pit of your stomach not like halfway down the throat or not the one that you're like do you feel cool out but yeah it's 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 right from the very bones of you and i mean that's that's thunder road by by bruce springsteen all right that is um you know i i almost don't do that one oddly on on karaoke because it um it gets awkward actually <laughs> <laughs> They're like, man, exactly. is this guy for real? Like, does he want to, is he trying to be on American Idol or what, what's going on? I, I, no, it's far, it's far less restrained than that. Like I'm just shouting. You're literally, you're just shouting and screaming. <laughs> it sounds terrible. You know, I, I've, I've actually, uh, I mean, my brother and I have seen Bruce together about six times and I've seen him about two or three times beyond that. And, uh, you know, the concerts are like a, a form of therapy. Um, really, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm having to turn my, my mouth away from the mic because I'm laughing that there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, one time we, we, he played Wembley and, uh, my brother and I were like, we're going front row. We have to get dead set front row. And I don't know if you've ever been to Bruce gig or, or, or not. I'm guessing not. Cause you're, you're laughing because you think this is ridiculous. No, no. I, like Bruce I'm fan a wouldn't. big fan. I used to, <laughs> that was on, that was the late night playlist early mid 20s late 20s in fact i'll put it on tonight because now that you've rehatched it i'm going to put it back on there we go so we we, we can't but i that... haven't been to a show oh right no oh well you should you should do that man it's it's pretty epic stuff we we camped outside wembley we brought a brought a tent and um a little pillow and some whiskey and we camped and we were like this is going to be amazing we are going to be first in line and uh, at bruce gigs what happens is they give you a number and then uh you line up in number order and that's the order that you go into the stadium which means number one who's been waiting there the longest gets to go front center freaking bang on you know pow so we were like we're going to be top 10 with this stuff and um we were sitting there there was no one else around various people with suitcases turned up and they ran in they got their you know they were looking around like where should we wait where's the you know what and anyway we're just like just hang out here they'll come and give out the numbers soon enough so we went over to uh, the place where the numbers were um, when the time was open, and we're like, "Yeah, we've we've been camping here all night. This is great." Held out my hand, and they wrote five hundred and fifty on it. We were like, "What it, is this a joke? Why am I five hundred and fifty? We've been here for the, the last twelve hours. You know, it's six a.m. What's <laughs> happening?" And they're like, "Oh, there's people who've been here all week." We're like, "What? What? Are you, where? Where are they? Oh, they're staying in the hotel." They're in the hotel. They've been coming out every six hours to collect their number from the hotel since Monday. I, I can't. I They're can't, pros. So, so you you picked up that trick. So, so yeah, we picked up that trick. Slash, it just rubbed out the zero. And we were number fifty-five, and um, and and <laughs> and don't tell any if there are any Bruce fans out there. I apologise because that is not good etiquette. Uh, a Bruce gig. But um, but we did it, and we were pretty near the front. And um, Bruce actually shared his microphone with me for one line of a song. No, and it was pretty epic. Yep. So I sang into the mic with him, with him. Yep. That's that is that is epic. I can see why it comes from deep within now. That, yeah, that, right. I know. Yeah, it all makes sense. That's a great one. Yeah, and I, the most epic thing he did also was in Spain. You and Courtney Cox. <laughs> That's right. right. It wasn't Courtney Cox. And... <laughs> <laughs> in in Spain, right after Clarence passed, and sorry if this is too much detail for the for the um, for the listeners, but after he passed, which was so sad, on one of the songs where his solo was the greatest, 
he just played silence and a moving uh, montage video for like for a minute over the whole time that that saxophone solo would have come out. And I mean, I, I'm not sure I've I've sobbed harder at, at in any moment in my life. Um, it was so moving. So yeah, what triggered the Bru- what triggered the love for Bruce? That that was the Stanford days or earlier? Um, earlier, earlier. Yeah, God, that that's a great question. I'd love to dig. I'd love to dig and find out. I don't even know. I don't know. It was just like I mean, I guess my dad used to play it a little bit when we were super young, but. My brother and I really took it by the horns and, and ran with it, and um, <laughs> took yeah. our love for Bruce yeah. by the horns and ran with it. And here we are. And here we are. Here we are, man. Oh, that's so good. Well, buddy, it's been an absolute treat. And uh, like I said, the story's great. You're great, and you know, wish you nothing but success, which I know, I know, will be there. So. Congrats. Thanks, Darcy. Great great talk to you. And yeah, thanks for setting all this stuff up. You bet. Your time is valuable. So thanks for joining us for this episode of Venture and Gains, where we connect great people, ideas, and opportunities. It's this idea of net weaving versus networking. Remember that you can find more episodes at VentureandGains.com. And if you know any entrepreneurs, emerging asset managers, or fascinating people that you think would be a good fit, flip us a note and let us know. Stay well. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Graybrook Realty Partners or Graybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.